Well, Ryan mentioned, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, is, there's a lot of verses. We're going to read through them, and I'll try to do my best to summarize quickly some of these sections. But uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the issue of pride. And we're going to look at this idea of pride through the lens of a character named Nebuchadnezzar, which most of you at some level have heard of him. Pride uh, is a tricky thing. Isn't it not? Pride is, pride is hard because I think uh, the nature of pride is so pervasive in our hearts and by nature it is self-deceptive. It's hard to really identify what part of what's going on in my life is pride. In other words, pride isn't just one thing that, that comes out in one way and you can hack that off and you're done with pride. Pride is so pervasive and it comes out in so many different ways. Pride is self-justifying. Right? Pride justifies our own sins. It makes excuses. It shifts the blame. It's like Teflon, right? Where, where the spirit wants to work and you're like, I'm, I'm bobbing and weaving, not letting the spirit take hold and change me from my pride. In fact, John Piper describes pride this way in his book, Future Grace. He says, pride is a turning away from God specifically to take satisfaction in self. Self is the key, the core of pride. So pride is one specific form of unbelief. And its antidote is the awakening and strengthening of faith in future grace. Humility can only exist in the presence and understanding of God alone. Humility can only survive in the presence of God. When God goes, listen, when God goes, and I would say a proper view of God, when that goes, humility goes with it. In fact, you might say that humility follows God like a shadow. We can expect to find humility applauded in our society about as often as we find God applauded. In fact, Jeremiah in the Old Testament, he said the same thing in different words about pride and humility, right? This is maybe a more familiar statement in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. He said this, let not the wise man boast in his what? In his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. For in these things I delight. It identifies these three major areas that we can boast in and glory in and, and find pride in in ourself. This is area of our mind or our intellect that we are uh, smarter, more intelligent than others. We, we value what we know and we want to make that known. We value our own strength. We don't, we don't glory in weakness, we glory in our strength, and then often in our material possessions. Our culture pushes us to glory in our own self-esteem, to find significance and value in what we do, rather than find our worth through God in Christ. We are plagued with self from, think about this, how does pride permeate all these things? It, it permeates in, uh, in boasting, in self-pity, in anxiety and in lust, all of which glory in the belief that we are the most valuable, important entity rather than God. I, I think pride manifests itself in, in big, grandiose ways and in really uh, obvious ways, but there's also very subtle ways that it, it manifests itself. In our culture, we live in a culture of selfies. 
Anybody ever take a selfie? It's okay if you do. This is a safe space. You can talk about it. Uh, but what I notice is, I don't think I post a lot of selfies, but I did notice that through the last 18 months, we had to have a new venue of communication through Zoom. Anybody have to do a Zoom meeting? Yeah, I, I get it. So, but, but when you Zoom, just think about this. I, here's what's plagued me about Zoom meetings, is that uh, who are you looking at typically when you're on the screen in a Zoom meeting? Be honest, who are you looking at? I'm looking at myself, and you know what I'm looking at? I'm going, ah, man, is my double chin showing? i got to stick it up. I, uh, a couple of uh, months ago, God, God has a very uh, interesting sense of humor, and uh, he gave me this big old honking cyst on my, on my head. That wasn't the joke. Why are you la- <laughs> laughing at that? Man, I have feelings. Uh, we were preaching through Daniel 7. It talked about a little horn. God gave me a little horn. An inch over would have been a unicorn, right? That's, that's right there. Anyway, so, so I had that out, but it's a big stitch. It's all bulbous and leaky and the whole thing. And every time I'm on Zoom, I'm going, oh, like, can you see that? Can I cover it up? Because when I'm on Zoom, who am I interested in? Who's, who's, who am I interested in what they look like? It's me. It reveals this, this self-driven view of myself that I think I'm most important We have a hard time asking for help. We have a hard time admitting weakness and acknowledging that we are not self-sufficient. I saw a meme that said, what are the three hardest words? What are the three hardest things to say for us? Is I was wrong, I am sorry, and Worcestershire sauce. Uh, Those are the three hardest things to say sometimes. We love our independence we love our strength. I don't know if you've been through this yet, but uh, we have some of our folks in the church that are getting into the older ages and stages of life where their independence gets smaller and smaller. Isn't that hard, right, when, when you have to go in and you have to take the car keys away for the last time from somebody or move them out of a house into a care facility? And that's such a hard life lesson because, because our world gets smaller and our independence gets less. The root of pride is the source of why we look to ourselves first and God last. Remember, James 4, 6 says this, God is opposed to the proud, right? God is opposed to the proud, not neutral toward, not saddened by, not disapproving of. He is in opposition to the prideful, but he gives grace to the humble, and those who, are hum- those who humble themselves or those he will humble by his mighty hand. So here we go. Daniel 4 is a story. I think why this is such a, a pertinent story, uh, but a powerful story, is that Nebuchadnezzar, you could say at the time of, of this writing, was the most prideful man in the world. I'm not sure who that would be today if we had to say who's the most prideful person right now in the world because we don't have this kind of world domination that you had uh, back in this time. But Nebuchadnezzar not only was prideful, I would, I would argue this, that he had reason to be so. He was a conqueror. He was a general. He was a ruler. He was an innovator. He was an engineer. He was an intellect. He had it all going for him, and he built a monumental city and nation. And yet, Daniel 4 is ultimately a testimony of this man. 
who was humbled in his pride, repented of his sin, and was restored in a relationship with the God who rules all things and all people for all times. And here's what we see. Listen, in in looking at Nebuchadnezzar, you can say, well, I'm not that prideful. That's nice. He's way out there. But, But really, Nebuchadnezzar is like most of us. Most of us just don't have the opportunity to express it the way Nebuchadnezzar did. Here's what Dale Davis said about our lives and Nebuchadnezzar's life. He says, for we are all a bunch of Nebuchadnezzar clones, wanting to call our own shots, to direct our own show, as puny as it is. Here's why pride is, is so deceiving. deceiving. It doesn't matter our greatness level. We can take pride in the smallest of things. And seldom, except in rare moments, moments of sanity, stopping to consider how foolish our passion for self-deification really is. So here we'll start with a testimony of God's rule in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Would you read with me uh, these first three verses? And like I said, there's a lot we're going to have to read through, but that's a good thing. And it starts this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, it's a, this is one long narrative. It's 37 verses, uh, but really one story. And, and before we kind of get rolling, there's a couple things we need to understand. First is, this is the only chapter uh, that I can think of, one of the only chapters, or the only chapter in the Bible written by a pagan. Uh, this is a foreign king who got to write a chapter in the Bible. Now, probably it was dictated to Daniel, and Daniel actually wrote it, but this is his story, King Nebuchadnezzar's story. And it's framed, uh, it begins and ends with personal testimony. He uses personal pronouns. The first three verses and the last few verses are framed as an autobiographical story, an autobiographical look into the life of Nebuchadnezzar, how he moved from pride to praise, from self to surrender. And, and just for a bit of context, this takes place uh, about 25 to 30 years after the fiery furnace of Daniel chapter 3. Is, is everybody decently uh, up to speed on, on, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace, Dan, you know, that whole thing? That was Daniel 3, this is Daniel 4, but there's, there's several decades in between this. To the degree that Daniel at this point is in his 50s, at some level still a young man, and Nebuchadnezzar is in his 60s or 70s. He's starting to get in the twilight of his life. Daniel 4.4 says that there was ease of war and everything was prospering, which would have taken some time to accomplish. In other words, this kingdom had been established. Nebuchadnezzar had a firm grip on things. And so that's where we find ourselves. And, and understand this. This is, this is a beautiful part of the story, is that all through the book of Daniel 1, 2, 3, and 4, it, it really the main, the main character is Daniel, right? We, we understand that. But Daniel 1, 2, and 1 through 4 is really about Nebuchadnezzar. And you see this relentless pursuit that God had in this king's life. In fact, in chapter 2, we see that God revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar. 
You remember Daniel 2 was about a, it was a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. We'll call him Neb from now on. I mean, it's, it's a tongue, it's a mouthful to say that every time. He had a dream of a big statue, remember? And the statue represented all the kingdoms to come, the four next kingdoms. And at the end of that, there was a big stone or big rock out of the mountain that crushed that stone. And at the end of that, here's what Nebuchadnezzar's testimony was. He says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this to me in Daniel 2.47. So God had, had begun to reveal himself to Neb. He, he began to show himself the mysteries of who he was. And, and at the end of chapter 2, you're thinking, ah, he's close, right? He's starting to see who God is. Then you get into chapter 3, and he didn't like very much that these Three Hebrew young men didn't bow their knee to him at the, at the trumpet and the, the big statue. And it says his face contorted in anger. Like he was so angry and hot with anger that, that his face was like this contortion. And so you remember when they come out of the fiery furnace and all of a sudden now Nebuchadnezzar sees that God is a rescuer. And he said this in Daniel 3, 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and who trusted in him. Oh, rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Now we'll see in chapter 4, not only is God a revealer of his mysteries, a rescuer of his people, but a ruler of the universe. In chapter 4, verse 17, Nebuchadnezzar learns that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Notice the timing of all of this. Uh, God, continued to, God continued to work on Nebuchadnezzar's heart. He, he revealed himself to him over years and decades of time. And I think, um, I think what, it, what it shows us is I think Nebuchadnezzar would have been that guy that you share the gospel with, a family member, a neighbor, a coworker. That Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody that you go, man, they're close? Anybody have that? Like, man, they can, they, they've seen it. They've said the right words. They, it seems like they're awfully close. And yet after decades and decades of time, Nebuchadnezzar still hadn't bowed his knee. And yet God wasn't done with him. We trust a sovereign God in all things, our suffering and even our salvation. And if we trust a sovereign God, then we never give up hope on anybody. And so Daniel continued, and, and I'm telling you, who was the main influence in Nebuchadnezzar's life through this whole time? It was Daniel, who consistently and relentlessly served this man, and I would even say loved this man, through the whole time. Now, look at chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 again, and see this. This is now, 4, 1 through 3 is the end of the story. He's going to go through the story, and then he's going to recap the story. So this is, his, this is his end testimony, right? This is him at the end after going through all of this in chapter 4. He started his testimony by addressing his whole kingdom. He wanted everyone to know what had happened to him. He wasn't holding back. He wasn't shortcutting the process. He, was, he wasn't going to make himself look any better. He wanted everybody to know. And notice how he frames it. He says, all peoples, all nations, and languages. This is all of his ruling kingdom. And it pleased him, it says, to display the signs and wonders of God 
that God had revealed to him. But here, notice that he's not pointing to his work, his vast kingdom. He's, he's pointing back to God's greatness and his rule. He did this without fear or embarrassment or hesitation or duty. And think about this. Just, just stop for a second and think about this. Here is the most pagan of kings who was willing to kill people on a whim that didn't, that didn't do everything that he wanted to do. He would wipe out thousands of people in a day. He, he was the most prideful man of, this, of the universe. Everything focused on himself, and yet he got to the end of himself. He humbled himself before the Lord, and now he wanted everyone to know it. Unashamed. He wanted people to know his testimony because he wanted people to know his God. Think about that. We, if you're a believer today, you have a dramatic testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, don't you? I grew up in a church, uh, and I, I was always a little bit uh, longing for that cool, radical testimony. Like growing up on the streets and you know selling drugs or whatever, and then God changed me in that, and there's this dramatic turnaround, and I'm like, eh, I went from kind of a good kid in a Christian home that that actually saw my, the the oh the depravity of my own heart, the wickedness of my own heart, and the selfishness and pride, and God radically changed me to become a follower of Him, and, and I'm like, eh, that just doesn't seem great, right? Isn't our testimony a miraculous work of God to bring you from death to life, from from being lost to being found, right? So so like your testimony is, is a testimony of the greatness of God through the work of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we hesitate to tell people that. Sometimes we hesitate to to bring that up in conversation. Sometimes we feel like, ah, it's a duty to do that or there's no joy in doing it. Here is the most pagan of pagan men in the world going, I don't care anymore. I want everyone to know about the God who I serve. He wanted to make him known. Well, then he goes into not, not just in first person, but now he talks about this story he talks about what actually happened to him. And, and uh, look, how, starting in verse 4, and let's read quickly down to verse 13. I, Nebuchadnezzar, now he goes back in the past. This is, uh, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my place. Everything was going well for him. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. Man, have you ever had those dreams that make you afraid? You may have those dreams that people are chasing you and running after you. And like you wake up going, what was that? I'm tired. That was him. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. And at last, Daniel came before me. He was named Belteshazzar. Uh, after the name of my God, and who, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, or the holy God, depending on a translation there. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream, that I may know their interpretation. The visions of my head, as I lay in my bed, were these. I saw... Uh, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height uh, was great. The tree grew and became strong and its 
top reached the heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its tree abundant and its food was for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. Just stop there. Just, just a few brief points uh, here before we keep rolling through. Uh, the first is this is not the first time that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Uh, he had one in chapter 2. And you remember, though, in chapter 2, what was the stipulation he had for all his magicians and enchanters and all the ones who studied the occult in this area? What was the stipulation? I want them all to come here, and I want you to not only give me the interpretation of the dream, I want you to do what? Tell me what the actual dream was. And, and none of them could do it. And so that's where Daniel was brought in for the first time in a dramatic way in chapter 2. Here, he skipped that part. He wasn't going to test them. He was so desperate to understand the interpretation of the dream. He goes, here's the actual dream. Just tell me what it was. And they still couldn't do it. It's very clear that he understood. He knew Daniel. It's, it's very clear that uh, even though Daniel may not have been in his court at this time, he had a, he had a high understanding and awareness of Daniel and, and his abilities. And the dream itself, listen, here's, here's what we find here, is that the dream itself wasn't that hard to understand. As I read it to you, especially as you know the ending, that also makes it helpful. But again, the, the, the dream itself was simple. There's a big tree. It grew up. It, it spread out. It had plenty of fruit. It provided shade for people, lodging for little animals, and provide fruit, fruit and food for the nations. And you go, clearly in that, that's, that's talking about whom? It's not very difficult. It's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. But, but somehow his magicians couldn't figure that out. And then notice that this dream, as so often do our dreams happen, right? This dream went from a nice, serene, snow-white type, like you, you hear the birds singing, right? And this, it's like, that's really nice. And all of a sudden, Tim Burton comes along, and it's like a nightmare before Christmas. It's like, what is going on? Like, like all of a sudden, verse 14 takes on, and all of a sudden, you're going, whoa, this is like nightmarish. Verse 14, here's what the watcher said. He proclaimed aloud and said, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump. Oh, man. Top of the morning, top of the muffin, leave the stump. Of its roots in the earth, bound with an iron, a, a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Notice here the switch from non-personal to personal. Look how it switches in 15. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over again. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end. Here it is. Here's the purpose that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of the kingdom are not able to make it known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. A lot there, but it's very simple. As Tim Burton got a hold of this, this tree was there, and he simply said this, 
Chop it, lop it, strip it, and scatter it. Chop it, lop it, strip it, and scatter it. I mean, in one fell swoop, uh, that tree went crashing down along with all the, the fruitfulness that it provided. Uh, in sea, do you guys have wind here? Do you get like windy, gusty winds? Is that, is that a thing? Man, Simi Valley, we had wind for like six months. We get these things called Santa Ana winds. Uh, we don't get snow days. Uh, we get uh, electric, electricity has gone out days, and we get smoke days. Not, anyway, smoke days from fires here. And, uh, and Simi Valley, man, I mean, you have these times where the wind gusts through, and these, it just topples the biggest of trees, the largest of trees in an instant. And that's, that's what happened. It just, it just came crashing down quickly violently and completely. But when the angel said, uh, then the angel said to leave the stump, this is, this is important. He said, leave the stump and put a fence around it. We'll come back to that. And then comes this very odd shift. I, I said, highlight that. It went from impersonal to personal. Now it's talking about a person. Typically, we don't talk about trees as people, although our culture can go that way anytime. Karen Cooper, who lives in Fort Myers, Florida, try to save a big tree from being chopped down. Uh, by, by calling it her hus- husband or something. She, that's what we do. But in most cultures, it'd be odd, even in a dream. Now he said that something's going to happen to this person. This person's going to become wet with dew. It's going to be outside. It's going to be for seven periods of time, which we believe are seven years of time, until, until this person will see that God is the Lord Most High. Now, Again, I think we see this because we know the ending. That, that story is pretty simple. Greatness of one achieved has been t- torn down in an instant, and for seven years, they're going to lose their mind until they come to the right knowledge and understanding of who God is. So here now, the interpretation is revealed. And what I want you to see, uh, maybe we won't read the whole thing, but let's look at verse 19. Here's, here's Daniel's angst. I, I love this about Daniel. He says, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and says, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and says, my Lord, may the dream be for you, for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. Daniel, I think it's phenomenal in that he had compassion for the king. Notice this. Uh, in chapter 2, uh, to actually understand the dream and its interpretation, Daniel spent an all-night vigil with his friends in prayer. He had to seek the Lord. He had to pray to the Lord. And God, please give me the interpretation of the green dream so I could tell the king. And he sought God's face all night. Here, he didn't have to go and pray. He knew immediately what the, what the interpretation was. And yet he was very hesitant and reluctant to tell the king. Here's what's fascinating. You remember back in chapter 1 that it was this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who did what to Daniel? Who stripped him away from his family, his friends, his land, forever, never to return. He threatened Daniel's lives. He actually threw his friends in a fiery furnace to kill them. This king was not kind to Daniel. This king was not a good man. And yet, what did Daniel do when he finally heard an interpretation of the demise of this king? I would think at some level, Daniel's like, finally, Lord, vindication. 
now you're going to be judged, you punky king. Ha <laughs> ha. And, and let's see you get chopped, lopped, stripped, and scattered. That is not what Daniel said. In fact, in fact, Daniel was very reluctant to give this hard message to the king. Oh, king, I, I wish I could give this to your enemies. I actually, I don't want you to hear this. I don't want you to have to go through this. And how was it that Daniel had such compassion for this king? I think it's the same way we have compassion for our ruling authorities. Do we ever hope for the demise of our ruling authorities? Don't answer that. I know the answer. But we all know that 1 Timothy 2 says we're to do what? To our ruling authorities who have charge over us, given us, given to us by God. What are we supposed to do? Pray for them. It's really hard to hope for the demise of people that you're praying for, especially for their salvation. So at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says. You're praying for the salvation of somebody and they, and they stumble over their words or stumble up the airlift to the plane or they, they do those things like it does. See, I know. It, 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 and, and there's part of it that delights our heart and part of it goes, man, I, I, don't, I don't want that for you. I want something better for you. I want salvation for you. I think Daniel had that. He had great compassion for this king. But he ended up delivering the news, much like Nathan the prophet in verse 22. He finally said, it is you, O king. You are the one. You remember Nathan said that to Daniel. Dan, uh, David, David, you are, you are the man who committed this adultery. To Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said, you are this man. And he repeats the story. He repeats the same phrases in verses 25 and 26. This will take place until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Until you know. And then he says this. Look at the counsel he gave to the king. Uh, Look at verse uh, 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps uh, that that may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity what was the counsel that david gave this king he gave him good counsel it's the same counsel we should receive today because he knew this was sure. It's the same counsel Isaiah gave to Judah years before in Isaiah 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before your eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow. Daniel says, break off your sins. Turn, repent. Turn to God, and today is the day of salvation for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Turn from your sin. Confess it freely. And isn't that, isn't that what we believe today, right? Isn't that what we believe today is if no matter what sin you're dealing with today, the freedom we have is to say, repent of it, turn from it, and, and actually be refreshed. You've been carrying around baggage in your life. You've been carrying around sin in your life that you don't have to, but we like to cultivate our sin sometimes, especially our pride. And, and Daniel would say, put it off. Put on righteousness. Come to Christ and find rest and joy, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time. Do it today. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't wait for a better opportunity. Well, quickly, look at the prophecy realized. This is, this is profound and, and sad all at once. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, 
is this not great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal, uh, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It sounded like a guy who really understood it. King, it's coming for you. Judgment's coming. Repent of your sin. And, and what happened after 12 months' time? I think this is what happens, right? This is what happens when we don't act on conviction, right? Time goes by, like a day goes by, and that conviction's a little less. A week goes by, and it's less still. A month goes by, and you're like, nothing bad happened. Okay, I'm going to keep going. And so 12 months, he, he just let it slide. After 12 months, he's walking on his royal palace, you know, uh, balcony, and he's looking out over his kingdom, and his kingdom was immense. One of the seven wonders of the world were attributed to Nebuchadnezzar, the hanging gardens that had a natural air conditioning way of, of doing that. He, he had a wife from another nation. She liked the mountains. There were no mountains. So you know what he did to her, for her? He built a mountain. I bought my wife some stuff from Hobby Lobby. I thought I'm doing pretty well. Like she, she likes hanging things. I'm like, oh, here's a Hobby Lobby thing. So he, he, he looked, and, and what he had done was, was immense and great, but, but notice what he said. He goes, look at what all I did. All the glory goes to me, me, me. And he had forgotten, he had forgotten about this prophecy, this dream that he had. This is much like Herod in Acts 12 who gave an oration to the people, and they responded, the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod didn't correct them, and an angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give glory to God, and he was struck with worms. I got worms, is what he said. This is what happened to the king. And so here we see what happened. Look, at, look again at verse uh, 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is, it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven out from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately, immediately, this all happened and came into fruition to Nebuchadnezzar. He lost his mind. He went and started to uh, eat the grass. His hair grew out like feathers, his fingernails like talons. And for seven years, there's a psychological condition even today called lycanthropy, where you think you are an animal, and that's how he lived. Seven years in, in this kind of crazy uh, uh, state until he came back to the Lord. There's several things to point out here. One is, remember that though he was driven out of his kingdom, God was going to preserve it for him. Remember the, the dream said there was a, a bronze ring around the stump of the tree. It means that God still didn't take the kingdom away from Nebuchadnezzar. I think that's tremendous. Just like God didn't take the throne from David, he didn't take the kingdom away from Nebuchadnezzar. And you know why, you know why I believe how that happened, that there was no insurrection, there was no somebody going, hey, it's been seven years, let's, let's you know, move this along. I believe he had a very loyal friend on the inside in a high-ranking office in Babylon at that time. Do you know his name? Daniel. I think Dan, Daniel was there to help preserve the kingdom for Nebuchadnezzar. 
Second, God brought the king low to raise him up again. God brought him low. to ra- It was a gracious act by God to bring him to insanity so that he could build him up again. When God acts on us to break us of our pride, it is the most gracious thing he could ever do. Listen, one thing I will not encourage you to do, do not do, not do this. Don't do it is pray that God would humble you. If you pray that God will humble you, he will do it. We either humble ourselves or he will humble us, and when he does, it is a gracious act to bring us back to himself. And third, God God can take what we trust in immediately at any moment. This king had everything in the world you could ever want. He had it all and more, and yet God in one moment took it all away. Listen, don't think God can't do it to us today. In one moment, all the things that we hold precious, he could take away. And if he takes it away, view it as his grace, not as a punishment per se. But we hold things, we have to hold things in our humility loosely. Well, this is the best part of the story. And look at then verse 34. Now Nebuchadnezzar, whose mind comes back to him, he finishes the story the way he started, and now he caps off this autobiography. He said, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I bless the Lord, I bless the Most High, and praise and honor him who lives forever. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of, host of, na- uh, host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. And I established in my kingdom And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the true king, the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What a testimony of God's faithfulness. A changed mind, a changed heart, a restored kingdom, and yet this kingdom now wasn't about him. He's saying, I'm going to deflect and defer any glory coming to myself back on to praise the God of the universe. From pride to praise. Listen, worship and praise can't exist in our pride. God does not share his glory with anyone. And so here is, here is a story, here is a testimony of the greatness of God and what he can do in our pride to turn us, turn us from that and humble us before himself. Let me leave you with two thoughts, and then we'll be done. Two thoughts. One is, God, God calls us to humble ourselves before each other and him. There are two ways, two pathways to humility. We do it ourselves, or we let him and wait for him to do it. Listen, folks, choose door number one. Let's humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, and he will lift us up. He will lift us up. Stop trying to lift yourselves up. Stop glorying in ourselves. Stop deceiving ourselves. We come to Christ, and we say, God, I want you to change me, and I want you to humble me. Second is this. Listen, we don't give up on anybody in terms of salvation. 
I love this story of Nebuchadnezzar. I love the story of Manasseh, who was, you just, uh, Pastor Ryan just preached on Manasseh a couple weeks ago, and what did God do to this nasty, terrible, horrible king through which the demise of the, the kingdom came? Do you know what he did? He humbled him in 2 Chronicles 33. The worst of the worst, he humbled, and, Nebuch- and Manasseh could say, I know now that the Lord is my God. He did it with Paul in the New Testament, who was on his way to wipe out the church and persecute the church, and Jesus revealed himself saying, Saul, Saul, you're, the one who you're persecuting is me. We don't give up on anybody. We don't stop praying for anybody, because God continues to work to draw those that he has called to himself. We learned this from this man, Nebuchadnezzar, who the most prideful man in the world, who was humbled to the point where he realized that everything he had was because God had given it to him all to his glory. I hope we can see the same thing. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time to be together. Thank you for your word, the clarity it brings to our minds and hearts. I pray that you would humble us, that we would see you clearly, that we would not give up, in praying for those that we've been working with for years and decades, that uh, even the most prideful, the most sinful, aren't outside of your reach. Pray as a church that Green Pond Bible Chapel would walk in humility so that they could be lifted up by you and praise you, that they would, they would treat each other with humility, that they'd wear the apron of a slave and a servant with each other. And think of others as having surpassing value greater than themselves. So thank you for this story. Thank you for this one in Nebuchadnezzar who was humbled through the harshest of circumstances and lifted up to the most joyful. We love you and thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.